Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I am Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have perhaps one of the most special guests on my show today that I've ever had in four and a half years. I have Alex, we'll call him Alex, but his real name is Alexander Vesely. He is the grandson of Victor Frankel. I'm saying that right. I think I'm saying it right. Frankel. Um, Victor wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is a game changer, life changing book that I've recommended thousands of times. I am so excited and honored to have Alex on the show today. So do me a favor right now and all of your friends a favor and share this out so they can be exposed to this and absorb this information as well. This is going to be wonderful. Stay with us. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. Let me bring Alex on. Alex, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's an honor to have you on and a privilege. So, um, wow, we have a very famous guy, Richard Bliss Brook, on with us today. Richard, good morning. Um, so, Alex, you are, I know you live in Vienna. And I'm going to be completely transparent with you. I had to ask my wife, where is the country of Vienna? And she said, it's not a country. It's in a country. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, I knew that. I was testing you, sweetheart, just to make sure you knew. Um, but uh, I know you're in Austria. And, um, and I, I'm so grateful that you're with us. And you're the grandson of the great Victor Frankl. Is it Frankl? Am I saying it right? Frankel, yes, Frankel. Frankel, okay. I, I'll, I'll understand if you say Frankel. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's an American thing, right? Frankel. Yeah. But um, so so Alex, talk about where you know things started for you, where you were born and raised. Did you know your grandfather? Did I mean? I did. I'm, I, I, yeah. Okay. Yes, I so did. I where was were born you born and raised? Here in Vienna, where where I'm right now, born and raised. Okay. And uh, my grandfather was around for the first 23 years of my life. So that's a substantial part. Uh, growing up, I was, uh, we were a very close family. So I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed a lot of time with him together. Wow. Um, I can't even imagine the, the wisdom that, you you've been exposed to i mean at least in the first 23 years of your life you you were exposed to incredible wisdom and i i started watching um your movie victor and i is that that yeah that's right um that's i started watching that last night i watched about half of it and it got way too late here um but you know is it your i don't know if it was your sister or your cousin that that's in that was talking about how playful your grandfather was yeah, yeah it was my sister yes it's your but, sister. Uh, okay. 
a, a lot of people uh, talked about that and, and enjoyed, got to enjoy the playful side of him. Maybe my sister and I a little more because we were little kids. And so he could, you know, let the inner kid out himself. Um, yeah. And that was a lot of the memories that I have. And, and, and what I miss the most is the fun. Yeah. So, so talk about what it was like for you growing up in, in Vienna as the grandson of, of, of Victor. I mean, he, he was incredibly famous, like globally. Not in Vienna. No, no, not in Vienna. You, you'd think that, but he was more uh, known in other countries. He would be invited to go any place around the world that, that uh, you know, my grandmother's still around. And when I ask her, have you been to, she said, yes, of course. So they were constantly traveling and he was teaching and giving lectures somewhere. Uh, but he was not so well known and not so much um, uh, a name that, that was a household name in Austria for several reasons. One of them uh, was that he was a disruptor to the system to the the way that psychotherapy had been done for decades you know vienna is the city of sigmund freud and to this day a lot of the uh influences from psychoanalysis are can, can still be uh felt and it's still a very prominent way of doing psychotherapy and the theories of my grandfather's the the uh, idea of uh, that he presented of how to do efficient psychotherapy, they were a little different, and they are mm. um, so different that that it's hard to combine them. So people didn't like them, not his peers, and um, therefore you wouldn't hear much about Frankel here. Yeah. So so he he um, again. I, I love people who are. Um, disruptors i guess right so he he seems like he may have been a bit of a disruptor yes. in 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 that world at least he was he was yeah. and uh he was a disruptor but he wasn't just disrupting for the sake of disrupting so he knew early on that he wanted to be a medical doctor he knew that when he was a, a child and the whole science of, of the mind and psychotherapy and, you know, Freud, that was all still fresh and new. And so he developed an interest early on. He was fascinated by psychotherapy and by the way you could help people just by, by having conversations. And so he got, he read everything that he could, he could read. And he was first a, a big fan of Sigmund Freud. I actually once met him on the street and, uh, and, and Freud recognized him because he had written letters to Sigmund Freud, which he had answered immediately. So they had, they were pen pals, even though my grandfather was still in high school at the time. Wow. Um, but then he saw that there were some things about psychoanalysis that didn't quite fit, that were not, uh, it didn't feel right to my grandfather, sort of this, this reducing everything to, uh, either pleasure or, or inner equilibrium. And he thought that something was missing. And so he became interested in the works of another pioneer of psychotherapy, Alfred Adler, which you might be familiar with. He uh, mm. developed a school named Individual Psychology. Adler himself had been a disciple of Freud and they had a fallout. And so now my grandfather was in, in, in these circles. Adler was a little more 
um, open to, okay, maybe it's not just, uh, we're not just doing everything for our own ego, but maybe we're a little directed towards the community during the outside world a little bit too. Maybe that's, that's a factor too in, in what we do. And so he liked that, but it, it still didn't go far enough. It was ultimately still this belief, well, you know, we're all born sort of feeling weak and then we want to overcompensate by uh, for that weakness by developing all our skills and getting control of our lives, which, sure, that's a factor, no doubt. Yeah. But for Adler, that was the be-all and end-all. That was it. That was the story of the human being. And so one day my grandfather said, Mr. Adler, uh, I think there's something missing here because these concepts of of just this will to power or what Freud had suggested, this will to pleasure, I don't think that's originally and primarily what people are uh, want in their lives. I think it is meaning. They want to give their life some meaning and they want to make a difference in this world. Um, and only if that, if they can't find anything, any meaningful tasks, then sometimes the the boomerang, so to speak, comes back and they fall back on the, on themselves and they say, yeah. oh, well, I don't know what I'm here for, but at least I want my life to be uh, nice and I want pleasure and I want to be comfortable or, or I want a lot of power just for power's sake, a lot of money and prestige. But that's already a symptom of something going wrong. This is not the, the healthy uh, uh, perspective. This is not how we should be and how we want to be so this is yeah. already kind of something going wrong and adler didn't accept but you know he still wanted this to be part of individual psychology it was still a big fan of adler but adler said no this this is not uh this is not what i'm teaching and and frankly you're out so he kicked him out and here he was <laughs> oh, something years old and he had been kicked out uh he wouldn't even greet him anymore in the coffee houses you know vienna and the coffee house culture everybody all the intellectuals knew everyone else. And my grandfather said, well, you know, that was his choice. I still respect him as a person and for what wow. he has done, but, but I respectfully disagree. And so I'll have to give my theories my own name. So he called it logotherapy, logos from the word Greek, meaning meaning or the word. So yeah. it's meaning, there is meaning centered therapy. And that's how the whole story started. So he just, again, he went, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me. So he went, he went off on, he just went off on his own path. He's like, I don't agree with, with Freud. I don't agree he with had the, to. That's, that's insane to me. That's, that's amazing at the same time. Like it, but like you're, you're talking, well, maybe back in that period of time, it it, it was still probably fairly new, the whole Freud approach. And obviously he was still alive. So it was probably a fairly new concept. So, so he went off on his own and created logo therapy, but I, I want to back up a little bit because I had, I told you in, in a correspondence that I had um, Rose Schindler on the show who was also a survivor of Auschwitz and um, an amazing lady. I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, talk, did your, did your grandfather talk much with you personally about his experiences in, in those horrific environments? Yes. 
Um, rarely. He did so when I asked him. And he did so sometimes when something, some situation reminded him of something that had happened in that time. Uh, I remember one day he, he told me he had dreamt that he was in Auschwitz and he woke up. And something that was typical for him was, uh, and, and also typical for logotherapy for that matter, is some things you can't change. And if you can't change, for example, you can't change your past. You can't change what happened to you. Uh, and he was aware that for the rest of his life, he was going to be uh, experiencing moments where he would have those flashbacks and you know, PTSD, it's called nowadays, yeah. where he would remember something and he put that would put him right back into the camps. Um, but you're not free to change that, but you're always free to change your attitude attitude towards that that fact. And um, he did not tell me this story that he had dreamt of, of the camps as, as something negative that he was uh, sad about or upset about. Uh, but he said, and Alex, and then I woke up and it was so good to be back here in, in, in the reality and back in the year 1980 something. Yeah. Um, and, and that made me very happy that it was just a dream and that I wasn't really back there. And wow. I think this shows very much of uh, the way that we all, all of us, are able um, to choose our attitude, if, if nothing else, if there's nothing else that we can change about the situation. We still have that last freedom to change our attitude and to choose how am I going to deal with that situation? I mean, am I going to let it uh, put me down? And am I going to, which would have been perfectly fine. I mean, he had every right. He would have had every right after 1945 to yeah. be a sad, bitter, broken man. And nobody would have blamed yeah. him. Um, right. But right. what would have been the meaning of that? He would have said, well, you know, that, that wouldn't change the situation. So um, that's the way that's the way he dealt with those things, uh, you know, and he certainly wouldn't have um, become as famous as as he did. <laughs> I wouldn't think if he walked through life as a bitter, broken man. And well, and... maybe, but, uh, you know, that he didn't even care about that. You know, it wasn't uh, right. it was not was not something that he was after. Right. No, I can tell that. I can tell that. So so. Uh, you know, I think about because uh, you know, obviously there were a lot of survivors from from that era. What what made him, in your opinion or your observations, what made him so different from a lot of other people? Where he literally came up with logo therapy, and what is the what are some of the differences between? Logotherapy, Gestalt therapy, Freudian. Th I mean, what what are some of the difference differences? How much in time that? do we have? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'll, oh, I, as much as we need. I, I don't. Yeah. But I, <laughs> no, no, I can, I'm just I curious. Like, what makes it? What obviously, I am a huge fan, as you know. Um, it, what, but what, in your opinion? I guess, in yeah. layman's terms, as close as possible. Um, what makes it so much different or and or better for the the recipient? Yeah. Well, um, I think one of the things is that in the logotherapy is if you if you 
take it literally and you say it's a school of psychotherapy actually it's not because it goes beyond the psychological and therefore logotherapy is, is not uh, better than other therapies uh, it's working on a different level and therefore it's highly compatible with basically all of the other schools of psychotherapy because it's working not on the psychological level not on the physical level but on that level which he called the existential or the noetic level and he actually called it dimension because he said levels you can separate but dimensions they are intertwined and all these aspects are always they always coexist they're always there at the same moment and they you, you can't separate them the human being is more than just a body and a psyche but there is this uh noetic level and he used the word noetic which is a little unusual because in english when he used the word spiritual that always has a, re a religious connotation uh, that's a little bit of a translation problem because in german there are actually two words for spiritual one is geistig and one is geistlich one geistlich has that religious connotation of, of you know the soul and the other does not it, it means geistig uh, sort of in the sense of that human core that persona that we are um you, you know the, the the driver in the seat right that has yeah. the ability to um decide over what ha what happens with the things that happen on the psychological level if i have i don't know if i have uh, some behavior patterns some some uh, phobias for example right that's that's my psychology i'm i'm not necessarily responsible for that it might have been uh some experience or it might even be genetic uh, connected with my body that i'm uh prone to developing phobias right but then yeah. there's yeah. me there is the noetic uh existence right the, the the person that's in there and that can always make that decision as i said before how am i going to deal with that how am i going to deal with that phobia am i going to run from uh, that situation am i going to run from every time i see a spider or am i going to do something about that am i go going to do uh, therapy right so i can make those decisions and we can always make those decisions and this multi-dimensional view of the human being is what makes logotherapy unique uh, no other school of psychotherapy goes there. All the other schools remain on that two-dimensional uh, model of the, the human being is a mind and a spirit. You have those two big groups, um, especially as brain and genetic research uh, gets better and better. We discover how much is actually encoded in our hardware, if you like. So a yeah. lot is in our yeah. genes that affects our behavior. And then not just our genes, but the genes in our biome, in our belly, uh, they even affect the behavior. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. So we have those influences going on there. And um, so there are, there are, there's this one group that says, oh, everything is, is biology in the end, and we're not really free to decide, but our genes decide for us, if you like. Right. And this other group, which says, oh, no, everything is uh, psychological. Everything's happening in the psyche. Everything is, okay, did you experience any childhood trauma or how did your parents bring you up and, and peer pressures and all those influences. And we have no problem with that in logotherapy. All these influences, all these conditionings and conditions, they are real. What we have a problem with is this 
uh, generalization and this reducing the human being to that and saying, this is it, this is all there is. It's all mm. just the genes or it's all just the behavior that we learned. We say a lot of it is, but the actually more interesting part is where those influences and condition processes end and where the human being makes free decisions, where we have the free will to say, okay, I have these circumstances that I can change or that I can try to change maybe, but yeah. that's my decision. What am I going to do with that? And so we, we operate on that level, on the noetic dimension, and that's very different and, and unique. You, you know, I've, um, I, I've, I've often thought, you know, people who, cause I've always been interested in, in the human condition and, and, and the, the psychology I've always found it fascinating. Um, probably because I was so messed up, <laughs> you know, I, I've always looked at like, I'm a, uh, right, but I'm a recovered alcoholic with 20 years sober and, 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 and your father or your grandfather's book was so impactful in my life early on in recovery. And I mm -hmm. look at, and, and I, so I'm, I'm leading into a question here. So, mm -hmm. so I look at, so I hear people say, oh, God showed me favor. And I've always had a problem with that. I'm just going to be honest because I don't think God plays favoritism. I don't think it's a, it's, I don't think God's like, well, Alex is a better looking guy than Ken Walls. So I'm going to bless him more. Or I don't think it works that way. Right. And so I've always thought, well, there's got to be some kind of a level of choice and responsibility. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's what it comes down to, the choice. And it, it is, and it doesn't contradict, uh, you know, my grandfather was also open, uh, you know, if somebody is, is spiritual or religious, right, then we, he would respect that. And logotherapy does respect that. So whatever values you bring in, uh, yeah. it's not the job of, of a therapist to judge that or, or even to talk you out of it or into it for that matter. Um, so, you know, if you believe that, uh, if you're believing and, and you believe that, that, uh, th there is such a thing as free will and that God gave us free will, right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. you, you made a choice, right? Uh, we have this gift, whether it comes from God or not is, is up to everyone's own beliefs or where that comes from. But, uh, in logotherapy, we believe in that human ability to make free choices, ultimately, even yeah. if they're very limited. And in a situation where you're dealing with, uh, addiction, for example, the, the choices narrow down because everything's crying out, oh, you know, your body wants the alcohol and your, your psyche wants the alcohol, right? So you have you have two against one, but then there's still this one person, which is you, who says, "Okay, I uh, have all these desires, and I I, I know my uh, suffering would be over if I take that drink, but you are still able to say to decide, no, am I going to do it or am I not going to do it? And that's right. something that's specific to us human, and that's that's uh, amazing, right? Yeah. I, I can tell you from personal experience that, you know, there, there was probably, I, I don't know how many years, but there is a point where it's like, well, the, I, 
I really didn't feel like I had a choice. Like I yeah. truly yeah. felt helpless. Like I didn't have a choice. I had to um, consume that. And, and so yeah. I can empathize with people who go through the oh. addictions and the, like, I get it. Like, it, yeah. right. So, so, and it sounds like logotherapy definitely um, is something that would benefit somebody in that, in, in, in an addictive cycle. It's very empowering because, uh, I mean, you're, you're a perfect ex example. Um, you can't, a, a lot of psychotherapies try to explain things away and try to rid people of their responsibilities and to say, yeah. oh, you know, poor you, it's not your fault. You right. Know, because I don't know, your parents drank or, you know, you'll always find something. I mean, if you're looking for reasons why people uh, start drinking, you, you will always find something. But sure. my grandfather was more interested in, okay, who is this person who should have become a drinker, should have become an addict, or should have stayed an addict and did not. And what is the factor? And usually mm. he found the one factor that everybody else overlooked, which was meaning, which is the orientation towards meaning that uh, that uh, opens up a new path towards uh, towards healing. And now we're getting into it, folks, because it it truly is it is that. And and I'm I'm thinking about your um, your movie. And, and that that actually comes up quite often in the first at least the first um, 50 minutes or so that I've seen so far it comes up you know quite a bit um, and I'm gonna butcher this Alex and you correct me um, please it's been a while since I read man's search for meaning I, I, I need to refresh on. Oh, has it so <laughs> I, I remember he said, and I don't know if it was a moment or if it was through time, but there, there, he said that he realized that the, the soldiers that were doing what they were doing in these, in these camps, um, that he realized they could take everything from him except for his mind that he still, he, he came to the realization that he had total control over that. The only thing that he had control over expand on that a little bit. If, and I know that I just, I, I butchered what the, the real, <laughs> Very thing, close, but, close yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he would say about his attitude. Right. Um, so there, and, and I'm, I'm delving into his, his broader theories here again. So, yeah. Uh, when he decided to no longer take everything from from Freud, you know, the, the teachings or from Adler, he said, I want to learn from my patients. So this all happened before the war. And sometimes people are not so aware of it that they think he just had those insights in, in the camp. And some of them he did. But he yeah. could see uh, that it, it, especially in difficult situations that you see. Uh, the best or the worst kind of come out of people because it's related to choice and because we can choose. And yeah. Um, yeah. he said, one of, you know, you can take everything away from a person. But the one thing that remains is the ability to adopt an attitude and that nobody can control. Nobody can make you hate somebody else, for example. Right. So these guards, they can treat me wrong, but they can't make me. I still decide whether or not I'm, I'm going to hate them or not or how I'm going to going, going to react, um, because we are not just reacting. That will be 
behavior therapy, right? They would say everything's ultimately a reaction, a learned reaction formation. Um, sort of like animals. You, you teach an animal to to jump when, when they get the, the, the food and they will jump. And um, a, a lot, to a large extent, we are animals in, in that sense, in that a lot of things are yeah. just trained behavior and habits, but it's not the whole story. And uh, so we're not just reacting and we're not just abreacting. That will go back to depth psychology and Freud saying you have all these inner tensions and inner conflicts that create tensions. And now these tensions have to get out of your system. And a lot of that is in popular, you know, the popular view of, of uh, you don't often recognize it, but when you read the newspapers, and you see, oh, he said to the judge, you know, he, he went to a store and, and shot around and killed a bunch of people. And then he said he was frustrated about his job or something, right? Where he'd never experienced enough love. As if that was a viable excuse that we should accept, right? If I'm treated wrong, oh, I have every right to, to treat others wrong. Is there no, is there nothing in between that, you know, what comes in must co go out? And even judges who accept and say, oh, well, he was just frustrated. Um, and so that that is ultimately you're, you're that, right. that still you're goes right. back to, to Freud, yeah. Or or people who say, oh, he never received so much love, so he couldn't give any. Right? Well, who says that? There are tons of examples and tons of people who did not receive a lot of love. Not saying that's a a good thing, right? Uh, or had very difficult children, a difficult childhoods, and said, well, because I didn't have that, because I know what it feels like not to be loved and received everything that a kid should receive, I'm going to do it differently, and I'm going to give that to my children or, uh, you know, children who need some help. Yeah. I'm going to do it differently. So what about those people? That, you know, that the system fails uh, when you, this simple logic fails uh, because human beings are, are always good for for surprises, and um, and so this attitude, this what attitude do I do I pick? If there is nothing else that I can change about the situation, so he didn't say you need to accept suffering. That would be a misinterpretation, or that meaning can only be found if you're suffering. No, that's a, that's a misinterpretation. The priority, if you're suffering, if there's something wrong in the world, if there's a situation that's not good. The priority is to make everything you can to to change that, but sometimes that is not possible. Think of some uh, disease, for example. If you get a diagnosis, right, uh, you don't have long to live. What are you going to do? And it's in those situations that we still have the choice. How am I going to uh, not react, but I'm going to use the word respond? How am I going to yeah. respond yeah. to this situation, to this challenge, to this question that life is asking me? And I still have control over how I'm going to respond. And if somebody does some injustice to me, I don't have to automatically react by doing injustice to this person or, or even to, to, to strangers, even worse. But I can still respond in a way that I say, okay, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll respond in a different way. Maybe I'll respond by, I'm, for example, helping that person understand that what they're doing is... Uh, is is unfair and is wrong, and he had this ability, and that brings me back to the uh, beginning of your question: was what 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 was different with him? Uh, I think he had this; he really had this ability to see uh, and to have this love for for humankind, for other human beings, and that doesn't mean to 
um, accept or um, like their flaws and their potential even for doing very bad things. But it was right. not a reason for him to hate them. He was very bad at hating people. And so um, that is a quality that um, I think made him different, that made his approach different. Um, and that got him a lot of criticism too, because people said he was too forgiving, which is another um, story that um, I don't think is really true if you look at it um, precisely. But um, uh, I, that was I, I mean, you know, I, again, and <clears throat> you know, it's written scripturally that that Jesus said, "Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do." Like, like you know, I I think that that is probably one of the most um, admirable traits of any human being is having the ability to forgive. And I truly believe, and again, you're the psychologist, I'm not, but I believe that that is um, quite possibly one of the, um, the pinnacles of, of healing is, is be having the ability. And I also think, and, and do you think that that having the ability to forgive those who've harmed you, um, do you think that that's important to growth success? This is a business show kind, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of what I talk about on my show is business stuff. I mean, what impact does that have on one's life and existence on this planet? Well, I think the ability to forgive is again, it's not something that's uh, necessarily in your genes or in your habits. You might have uh, the habit not to forgive, right? And still do it right. despite of it. It's that's a choice, really. It's in the yeah. choice, it, it's completely the responsibility of the person who has experienced the wrongdoing, whether or not they want to forgive. You can't forgive for some, you know, somebody else if somebody else has, has been damaged. Um, yeah. I think the ability to forgive oneself is a very important one too. That's often a problem, and you see that in practice. Um, and yeah. he presented yeah. ways. He he actually called this the tragic triad of life. Um, the three kind of topics, and and you see how that again goes beyond really psychology. It goes into philosophy, and that matters. It, that has a psychological effect because it affects your attitude, that affects your behavior, that affects the, the, how, you, how you experience life, right? Yeah. Uh, the yeah. ability to, um, the, the tragic triad. So we don't get around the topics of death, be it our own mortality or losing someone that we love. Uh, we don't get around suffering, that kind of suffering, which is not avoidable, starting from, you know, having the flu uh, yeah. to, uh, you know, some incurable disease. And then number three, guilt. That's an unavoidable fact of life that sooner or later, every one of us will put some guilt on their conscience, whether we want it or not, uh, either through something that we do or did or, or don't. And so um, a lot of times that's the underlying theme of why somebody uh, seeks psychological help. And that's something, there's no psychological uh, trick or uh, training that can kind of get rid of that guilt, even though, uh, again, a lot of psychotherapies, they would try that uh, psychoanalysis most famously by saying, oh, it's you know, ultimately uh, whatever you did is not your fault. It's, it's your parents who just 
screwed you up, right? <laughs> and therefore, uh, the responsibility was theirs. And if you follow that logic, then it wasn't theirs to begin with either, but their parents. And you go back to Adam and Eve. So I wonder how much sense that really makes ultimately. So no one's responsible. Yeah. Um, but no, we are responsible. And there are ways to continue with, with life and live a, uh, a good life, maybe an even better one than before, by how we deal with guilt, the guilt, our own guilt, or uh, others who have taken upon their conscious something because they did something wrong, how how we learn from that. And uh, he would say that you can always find some meaning in those things that, that happen to you, and you can turn them into something meaningful, even if in and of themselves they have apparently no meaning. Um, yeah. But by even saying, okay, I'm learning from this now, and now not, I'm, not only am I going to uh, create a different future for myself and not repeat that mistake, or maybe even help others not to re repeat that mistake. Right. And if you do right. that, then you have retroactively turned this tragedy into, uh, he would say, a human triumph, but into a springboard, into something that uh, propelled you further and that allowed you to growth, to grow and to, yeah. to become a better person. He would say a murderer who's truly at the core of his, his being, regretting what um, he did on an existential basis could be considered no longer a murderer because that's in his past and he wouldn't be able to do that anymore. Now, he wouldn't do that because his conscience... Uh, has kicked in and told him, you know, you, that was wrong. And so you got to give people that chance to uh, to accept the responsibility that we yeah. all have. You know, that comes with free choice, right? Yeah. He would yeah. go to jail where people would tell him, you know, he was in San Quentin and these um, inmates said, we were expecting one of those speeches that tell us we're not responsible. It was it was the environment, right? That, that was at the time. And we had no choice to begin with. And they said, that's like a millstone around our neck because we can't hear that anymore. And here comes this psychiatrist from Vienna. And he says, no, you you were guilty. And, you know, you and you were caught. <laughs> you know, everyone's guilty. <laughs> right. Caught, right. And yeah. uh, and. As, but you are human beings. It was Carl Jaspers, the philosopher, who said every human being has the right to be punished. Because if you take that, if you take away the punishment, right, you, you would say, okay, you're not human. You're subhumanizing. You, you're turning yeah. people, you're viewing them like, as if they were animals and not humans. And as animals, we have free choice. We have uh, the ability yeah. to make good choices or bad choices and to be responsible and to have to stand up uh, and take accept the responsibility for our own actions and and go to that process of of uh, forgiving or, or not forgiving without getting political i don't want to get but but it yeah, seems not. to be rampant <laughs> so let's not go there um in society today, and it doesn't matter where you live on planet Earth, there seems to be this humongous um, void of taking responsibility for one's actions, life, success, failures, whatever it is. How can the application of logotherapy 
help somebody learn to take responsibility to take to take action in their lives to to stop blaming other people um you know my lack of success in life i always blame richard bliss brook for that um i'm kidding but but like you know how do i how do you get somebody to stop blaming other people and take responsibility for their life essentially by telling them to listen to their conscience the, you know ultimately this is not something that that you have to um teach people or 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 he would say you know in, in a lot of psychotherapies view the conscience as something that's that's in us that's genetic or that's uh, trained again and uh, my grandfather yeah. had the yeah. opinion that the real conscience only begins where all those influences end where it's no longer about punishment or um you know the fear of punishment. If 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 you hit a dog, right, they're gonna hide when they did something that, that was wrong. But uh, that's usually that's just in, in instinct and, and learned behavior that that's trained. But the human being, uh, we have this this um, authority that's our conscience, and it doesn't. It, you can't turn it off. You can decide not to listen to it, but that's again a choice, right? And yeah. it's hard to argue. It, I see it kind of as the inner, um, the, you know, the judge, right? the judge behind the, the podium. <laughs> yeah. And, and it might be this little old man with, with a wig who's not very strong physically, but you have the, you know, you have the criminal say in the, in the courtroom who has more power. Is it, is it the, uh, is it the, the, the wrestler or is it the, the, the old judge with, uh, with the wig and the hammer? <laughs> and, and it's, it's, pointing towards truth and it's yeah, pointing towards yeah. your responsibility um and we know very well when we did something that was wrong our conscience is telling telling us so yeah. um yeah. unfortunately the conscience is only one of those influences and, and and voices if you like in our heads and uh it's not the loudest one um and and there are many other influences that will tell you okay you know look what's good for you which is also very much in our culture today like oh you know just just push away any responsibility and just just watch your boundaries and see that you're getting everything that you need out of the situation for yourself it's very self it's a very selfish kind of culture um yeah. and uh, but the conscience is always uh, is is always cooking and it's always there and people know that and it's easier actually to live and it's harder to live listening to your conscience, um, but it's also it's also easier if you do that. And of course, like everything, it, it's it's can be trained and it becomes a habit after a while. Um, but the chance is always there, even if you have lived just always going in the other direction as your conscience um, um, pointed to. It's not forcing us; it's just pointing it's like a compass. Um, even then you can say, okay, well, now I'm going to do it differently from now on. This is day one. Uh, now in between the rest uh, to, to day I die, I will be a different person. And people do that. They have always done that. And they always have that possibility to do that. I, I, I think, and Bob has a question, Bob Donnell, who introduced us. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. So grateful Hi, for Bob. that. Um, is it possible for someone to take shame or guilt and 
use them productively and how. And I, I also want to throw in because you just talked a lot about taking responsibility and I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm absorbing this and I'm thinking about um, the people that I've seen over the years that refuse denial, right? Um, I, I heard in recovery a long time ago that um, denial is an acronym that stands for don't even notice I am lying, right? So like you, right. denial is like you don't even notice that you're lying to yourself about everything, right? And so I, I denial is an incredibly powerful thing. I don't know if it's a survival mechanism or what it is exactly, um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about or have you talk a little bit about that as well and how to get somebody out of denial into the reality of life. Well, again, free choice yeah. that gives us responsibility. It comes with that. And responsibility comes with that's risky because if you fail to achieve what you want to achieve with, with with your intention then you become guilty so if you take the the example in an airplane right you're a pilot and you're flying um you can put the airplane on autopilot and not think of where, where, where you're doing what you're doing and someone else is flying and that might go well for a while but there are those situations in which you the autopilot pilot is, is not going to be enough. Say there's there's a mountain and uh, you need to get across that and the autopilot yeah. is, is not yeah. noticing it, right? So you want to take control. And then it's in, in the hands of the pilot. If you're the pilot, it's in your hands now to the, all those lives of the, the people on your plane. All these people are affected by your decisions. Yeah. And, you know that that if you think too much about it, that's a burden. That's a that's stress. That's not very comfortable um, because you know that oh, am I, am, if I'm going to flip the switch in, uh, too soon or too late, then we might all uh, crash and die, and then I'm responsible for the death of all these people that uh, are on that plane. Now that's uncomfortable to think about, and this is the reason why sometimes. Uh, we shy away from even taking that responsibility and saying, okay, I'll, I'll let somebody else do it. I'll do nothing. Because if I touch this, then something might go wrong and then I'm guilty. The problem with yeah. this is, um, first of all, by saying, okay, I'm not going to touch this, you, you've already, you already made a decision, which is to not do anything. So if it now goes wrong, then you're also responsible because you might have actually... Um, done it right and, and saved the day and right you right, it, right? <laughs> and you didn't yeah. so you can become guilty by not doing anything or not intervening when you should have so there's really no way out out of this uh responsibleness and um my grandfather could observe that and he saw that that actually people healthy people in a in a good healthy state originally they're not afraid. They're actually out to assume and to take on responsibility. This is a healthy um, process and relationship between you and the world, that you see things that are important, that are necessary, that are of value, that need to be protected yeah. uh, by your input, by your 
your doing, by your choices. And that we want to do that. And a healthy person wants to do that. And if you want to, I don't know, uh, fly that plane safely, then you know, okay, I, I have the skill. Then you'll learn to do it. You'll learn to do it right. You, you will give your best when you know this is an, an important uh, couple of seconds that I have to make those decisions. And then uh, you'll save it, not for yourself, not in order to feel good uh, or to not feel guilty, but simply for the fact that it needs to be done. And for the fact that you are responsible for all those lives in your hands. So yeah. there is this element of self-transcendence, he calls it. And that's often missing. This ability nowadays, this ability to self-transcend, to think beyond the own ego, beyond the effects that some decision might have on yourself and the ensuing avoidance behavior of saying, okay, well, if that can go wrong, I'll feel bad. So... I don't want to feel bad, so I'll I'll go somewhere else, or I'll I'll not even touch this. It's all about feeling, you see, and it's all about the own feelings, all about the ego. So, really, what a waste and what a tragedy that some people who could do great things are not doing them only because they are concerned about their own emotional states that might be elicited if they do it but something goes wrong and something can always go wrong even if it's not your own uh, mistake right take that plane again something might be wrong with the plane and and, right. and then it's not even right. the pilot error and still everybody dies so um this focus on my own feelings here's my little world and i want my world to be nice and to feel safe and i want to avoid even the possibility of becoming guilty by making a bad choice therefore i won't make any choices at all this is highly neurotic and it's unfortunately fueled by today's uh you know all these influences that were exposed this of mainstream psychology even and if you go to the self-help sections in any bookstore and you see how everything is about the ego this is still that dogma this this um um idea that ultimately everything that we do is just for ourselves and it's even 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 more reductionistic it's it's just for eliciting some states of feeling for either gaining pleasure or for avoiding uh displeasure of avoiding bad feelings and when you're guilty and i'm not saying if you feel guilty but when you are guilty then usually you also feel it you also feel bad and this has to be avoided so it all becomes about one's own feelings and uh yeah. This is, this is really detrimental and not healthy and even pushes further people in into this disconnect from the real world. It's no longer about what, what about those people on the plane? What about those lives that I'm influencing with, with my possibility, with my capabilities, with the things that I could bring in into a situation uh, to, to, in, to try to make a difference there, a positive difference? But, oh, I'm going to shy away because it's all about my feelings. And uh, in logotherapy, you see how that is really a very different approach of saying, okay, now let's forget. Yeah. We're not going to talk boundaries. We're not going to about feelings. We're not going to talk about feelings of how you're going to make your life more comfortable. But sometimes on the contrary. But it has to be a meaningful, a meaningful activity, a meaningful tension. So your life might be even more full of tensions, but it's meaningful tension. And that's... Um, that's that's how we uh, how we how we work, and um, I think that the, answers the question of of these feelings of shame of guilt. Now I'm putting a big yeah. disclaimer. 
feelings of shame and guilt uh, in a healthy individual, they are the result of actual shame and guilt. But right. they're all individuals, right? So it, it's even uh, you have to, and and there are ways to dre- to deal with your shame and guilt. I mean, you you can, as I said before, you can you can uh, learn from that situation, and you you can stand up to your uh, to what you did, and 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 try to make something meaningful out of that. Now, some yeah, people yeah. experience shame and guilt; these feelings, uh, even though they're they they have not uh, done something bad or. Uh, maybe the feelings of shame and guilt are disproportional to the actual uh, shame and guilt. And this is often the case uh, when a person is depressed. So you have to be very careful uh, in, in making a diagnosis or getting a diagnos- diagnosis when you're affected yourself. Feelings of shame and guilt uh, can be a symptom of, a, of an underlying uh, depression. And, so, and, then, and then you have to um, evaluate that differently. So I have a, this is me personally, only my opinion. (laughs) So, um, but I have, I, and I love what Richard Bliss Brooks said earlier in the comments here. I don't know if he's still on or not, but he said, I believe that shame and guilt, et cetera, are just stories that we believe. Belief is learned. We can create a new story. That is the gift of being human. And we're the only being on the planet that has the gift of creative thought. A new story perhaps it's not always that simple or perhaps it is <laughs> so um i love that statement that he just said but i think that that you know from my perspective i look at um because i i do some coaching and and i've i've had people say to me i'm so depressed i'm like hmm. well stop that <laughs> did you ever see the Bob Newhart, Glenn Morshower and oh, yeah. I, we've joked about I this. Bob where, Bob Newhart. <laughs> I know, where he's like, stop it. Stop <laughs> he's playing the, <laughs> yeah. She's like, but I'm, I'm really sad. And he goes, well, stop it. <laughs> you know? And it's like, I, it's an oversimplification maybe, but it seems like, dude, that's reality. Just like, stop being depressed. And, and instead, people are going, well, I've got to dig into my inner child and I'm going to need some some antidepressants to consume. And 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 I mean, is there a place in your opinion? Is there a place for that? Is it is it over? Is it being overused? I feel like it's being overused in, in the world today. What do you mean? Uh, it's like uh, the, the consumption of uh, take a pill, take a pill yeah. to to. Yeah. to Oh, absolutely. It's overprescribed. But um, I think it's dangerous uh, or important to keep in mind that, uh, you know, one extreme isn't necessarily better than another extreme. Uh, again, you have to look carefully at where's the root of the problem? Where is this depression rooted in? And so I talked about this two-dimensional model of just uh, the body and the, and, and the mind and the, and the psyche. And um, so uh, if, for example, you're dealing with a case where somebody has trouble getting out of bed and feels suicidal and they had an uncle who killed himself or, 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 or a parent um, and there's no objective reason of why that person should feel the way they're feeling, then you can be pretty sure that there's something going on genetically. That this is, there's a her- hereditary root in depression. Uh, and then there are people who uh, have um, bad lifestyle habits and, and they don't eat right and 
um, and, and maybe they have a, a trauma and you know never talked about that and they feel depressed and then you have a problem that's helping that's really originating on the psychological level um, right. and Viktor Frankl introduced a third possibilities because he saw some people uh, cannot be helped with antidepressants so when it's hereditary then absolutely you need to use uh, antidepressants because it's a medical problem ultimately and it would be uh, malpractice not to not to do that uh, if it's a psychological problem if, if there's some trauma then you you have to do psychotherapy you have those to do this conversation you have to process what happened um, primarily the the primary route is there but then there are those there's this third category which only now slowly uh, is, is kind of entering mainstream uh, psychotherapy, that there is that group of people where the body is all right. There's no, no physical factors, no, no genetic factors. There's no psychological factors, but still they are depressed. Uh, and they are depressed over the apparent meaninglessness of their existence. And they have no direction, no orientation in life. They don't know where they're going or why the hell uh, they should put in an effort if, if, if in the end everything's going to go to pieces anyway, because right. you know, 100 will all be gone. Um, and then you have a problem that is existential in nature there's a lack of meaning my grandfather called it the existential vacuum and it's about 20 percent uh and it's very high actually interestingly it's higher in western civilized uh societies where you would think it'd be lower because people are well off now meaning has nothing to do with how well off you are actually that might even be in the way of you finding meaning that there's too much other stuff uh, material wealth and all that going on that kind of blocks your view on what's essential we as humans don't just need something to live from but we need something to live for and that's meaning and meaning comes in the form of a meaningful task or uh, another person loving another person that's that's meaningful so um, this noetic depression then is nothing that can be cured with antidepressants because nothing's wrong with the body it's nothing that can be cured by exercises or behavioral change or lifestyle change because it's not a problem of lifestyle change it is that unanswered question of what meaning does my existence have and if the, and even asking that question is not a problem is not a a something negative is not pathology it's nothing wrong with the person who asks that my grandfather said actually this is a sign that you're very mature and that you're at the highest level of uh, you know, awareness in your life that you even ask that question. No animal asks a question, as far as we know. It's only the human being that can, can ask, and it puts, that, it puts you in the same uh, tradition with the biggest thinkers and, and all the philosophers that ever walked on this earth, if you ask yeah. that question. But f not finding an answer and not finding it for a long period of time that can lead to what he called the existential frustration and then ultimately a depression which looks like any other depression um, but it has the roots somewhere completely different than these other forms so you have to be precise in your diagnosis and i agree with you a lot of times nowadays we're not the, the uh, idc or the dsm they're not even going into where where does the problem occur and which dimension of of this individual is it the physical right. is it the psychological or is it the noetic the existential is there an existential problematic they did away with all of that and they said we're only going to classify dep depressions by severity and if it's severe then you have to work with medication and if it's less severe then you can do traditional psychotherapy with talking so they've 
they basically made things worse. And now you have this rampant overprescription with with drugs because if you see something only on that dimension of okay, here's someone who's depressed. I mean, it's like when I cut an onion and I cry, and I, if I lose a person that I love, I cry too. It looks the same, right? But one yeah. thing is a cause and no reason. I don't have a reason to cry if I'm cutting an onion, but I have very much a reason to cry when I lost somebody who's important. On the outside, it will look, oh, there are tears coming from this person's eyes, so we have to stop that, do the quick fix. And this, of course, is something that, that we've always uh, very much criticized in, in you know, if mainstream psychology. Glenn, Glenn Morshauer talks about, and I love it. He goes, do you think that the creator of everything, God, the creator of the universe, accidentally installed tear ducts in men? Because we're <laughs> always so quick to hand them a tissue and say, now here you go, you know, big boys don't cry. And and right. and I, I absolutely, I love that. I, I think, though, um, this again is my my opinion. I'm not qualified to have an opinion in psychology, probably. But but well, you are human, so you do. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Um, but you know, I think that that I look at it when you say because for for a long time I was told I was genetically predispositioned to be an alcoholic. And so guess what I became, <laughs> you know, and, and then one day I woke up and said, God, this sucks being like this and living like this. And mm -hmm. I need to change. And what do I need to do to change? And who do I need to talk to? And I think that, that we, as a society, we're too quick to say, oh, well, they're probably just, um, genetically, um, you know, have something going on genetically. So we excuse them in, in a sense. Exactly. Right. As if, you know, which might be the case, which might be the case. But, but even, how do you even know? If true, but even if it's true, well, I, I don't know. Did, did they do some tests or anything? I mean, it might be the fact that, that you are, right. right? But this doesn't take away your last word in, in that matter. <laughs> saying you right. know i might have but i'm but that's why i'm going to be extra careful and that's why i'm not going to touch it anymore it, it does not take away your freedom am i going to have that glass or not it does not determine yeah. that we're not determined by our conditions not fully right we might be limited but we're not fully determined the choice I, is still I, is yours i i totally agree i Alex, I could literally talk to you all day, um, but I know you don't have that kind of time. But I, let, let me ask you one last question, though. I, I always try to get this, this question in, um, and I think that this might be very appropriate for this conversation. What, and Bob Donnell, I got to pop his comment up, love and am grateful for you, Alex. Um so so in your opinion see i i i like to think about because i've been homeless and broke and i've been wealthy and i can tell you that wealthy is better i, I from personal experience at least for me um what do you think keeps people from experiencing real success freedom 
and um, and and meaning in life. Mm-hmm. What is it that's stopping people in today's yeah. world? I think it's it's what, what we uh, touched on before. It's the fear of assuming responsibility because of the effects it might have. And we're very much uh, oriented or trained to be oriented towards the effects that um, things have on us. So you got to be successful no matter what you're doing, no matter what if what you're doing is meaningful or, or meaningless. So success is kind of equaled with, with, with meaning, which nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you could be very successful and what you're doing has very little meaning. And you can feel that you have no... no uh, uh, success at all you can have you can have no success at all and what you do is very very meaningful and maybe uh, will only come to fruition when you're when you're long gone um, uh, there are people who have been very successful and yet inside they felt empty and terrible and horrible and they felt that they, what they were doing lacked meaning and and they were not fulfilled at all and then at some point maybe came around and uh, saw that it was uh, better uh, for the world and for them to do something meaningful. Uh, there is no shortcut towards success. And again, we're talking about emotion. We're talking about effects, feeling good. It's yeah. the same with happiness. You know, we're being told, oh, everyone has the right to be happy. No, <laughs> you don't. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and above all, happiness is not something that can uh, be achieved by wanting it right happiness and success are byproducts they're effects and they're really side effects and have to remain side effects of fulfilling meaningful tasks and once you fulfill a meaningful task something that really makes a difference in the world uh then happiness and success they happen they happen automatically you don't need to take care of them usually but sometimes they don't. Sometimes what you're doing is meaningful and it's right, and 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 it's not seen as such. Or you know, success is just not uh, uh, happiness. It's just not happening to you for for whatever reasons. But there's something beyond happiness. Knowing that what you're doing and what you did is meaningful can, leads to more than happiness. You 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 gain something that's more valuable than even success, which is uh, that inner. Uh, state of being fulfilled and of knowing what I did was meaningful or what I'm doing is meaningful. Uh, in some, uh, by, there's a psychologist who um, did some research and he called it the flow state. When people are in this state of flow where they say, oh, in that moment, I'm not even thinking about myself. I'm not even thinking about success or uh, what effect this is going to bring to have on me and my life. And you shouldn't. Because then we are the most ourselves and the best version of ourselves. And this has been proven over and over. This happens in those moments when we overlook ourselves, when we forget about ourselves, when we don't make it all about us. But when we are fully immersed and committed to a meaningful cause, and always side note, that can be another person. If you love another person, that is meaning. That is the meaning that you're you're oriented towards but this state of um uh, we call it self-transcendence is really the original primary state that uh we have when when we're when we're children some of the happiest moments are in that state and you see if you if you have children you you say okay look here at the camera and smile it's going to be likely not natural 
But if you give them something to play with, their favorite toy or some activity that they love, then you get the actual natural, authentic expression. And they're in that moment of, of joy where they don't think about, you know, do I need to go to the bathroom or right, all these concerns that are just redirected to, to ourselves. And we've become so trained by, by society to see, oh, you got to be number one. You got to be always looking out for yourself. You got to watch your boundaries and everything is about success. So as if you couldn't be successful with doing something meaningless. You know, if you look at success for a while, Hitler was very successful, right? So if that would be a factor of meaning yeah. fulfillment, yeah. Um, then he would be, that would be something to, to, uh, to, to aim for, right? So um, don't yeah. take success yeah. too, too, too seriously. Success happens and, uh, or, or it doesn't, um, but it doesn't take away or add to the meaningfulness of your intention and watch your intentions and watch your goals yeah. and the quality of your goals. And if there's no self-transcendent element in it, then it's likely that even if you reach that goal, you're not going to be fulfilled because all you've done is, I don't know, add some more money to your account, make sure that you're never going to run out of, of, of food, right? So, and then what, yeah. right? It's enough for a dog, but it's not enough for a human being to have everything to live from. Yeah, I love that. That what a great answer. I think that um, you know, because I think about your um, quite often when I talk to people that are like, "Oh, I'm having a horrible life or a horrible whatever," and, and I'm like, "Hey, um, go pick up Man's Search for Meaning and and read that." And then call me back and tell me how horrible your life is, <laughs> because there's nothing, nothing that compares to that that I can think of, you know. And it's like, well, and, and and here's my grandfather. I'm sorry to, because this is important. Yeah, no, he would always say, yeah. you know, don't 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 take that thought too far, um, because this was my personal, you know, suffering, biggest suffering in my life that that I was confronted with, but everyone has their own confrontation with suffering yeah, um, yeah. and yeah. for everybody their stuff their worst suffering is the worst thing that ever happened to them so it's not fair to compare it um, right he went so right. far and only he could say that because he had been there but he said everyone has their own auschwitz and it's not fair to make those comparisons because somebody who's suffering from even something that would seem minor right I don't know. They 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 lost their driver's license or something, right? That yeah. can that can feel that can fulfill their whole uh, existence with with uh, oh now I lost something that was of value to me and I feel terrible, and that you ha you have to take that at face value and understand that there is no uh, that that suffering is suffering and human suffering cannot be compared. You can only compare it within your own life, and say yeah. right, like yeah. you can. You say you were homeless. So I'm sure that a lot of things that if they go wrong nowadays, you can you can say to yourself, Ken, you've been through that and you're gonna you're gonna be sad about I don't know, this happening now. You can, right. you can do that comparison to get yourself over suffering. Yeah. And, yeah. But um, we have to respect that suffering is suffering, uh, and but yet it does not take away the potential for meaningfulness, for e finding even greater and deeper meaning because of that suffering you went through by growing from it. Um, 
and and to live a, a life that is uh, meaningful and also, if you're lucky, successful. And I, I hate to, to summarize all of it by saying this, but I, it's a Buddhist um, saying that pain in life is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. And, and how long we suffer is a choice. And everything that you've talked about, <laughs> like I hate to summarize everything that you've said because it's all been incredibly brilliant, but it all does come down to choice. You get to choose. You know, and it's my grandfather was the first to say what I'm saying is nothing new because I just observed and kind of put things into a system, added some uh, words so that it's usable for psychotherapists and and non-psychotherapists. Yeah. Uh, but he yeah. said, whenever I go to the U.S., this was in the 50s and 60s, he said, they're telling me, oh, finally, somebody who tells us something new. And whenever I go east, I say to India, people are telling me, oh, finally, someone is telling us some of the old things <laughs> that we've known <laughs> from, you know, Sanskrit scriptures and all that. Right. Uh, so it was not new. And um, it's, it's just... Uh, to 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 link to that you know short formula um yeah. he said uh s is um d minus m he said suffering no sorry d is s minus m i got it wrong d is d is for uh, despair equals s minus m suffering minus meaning if there if you see no meaning in your suffering nothing that wow. you can get out of there or you don't see it but it might be there but you don't see it then you're in despair but suffering alone is no reason to automatically fall into despair it doesn't equal despair you can suffer and you can do so in a way that's uh not going to make you uh fall into despair and you can go through and this is really uh, a good way to close uh, i said this is really the task of psychotherapy it is not to take away uh bad feelings from people but it is to enable and strengthen people to endure unavoidable suffering and to go and cope with the challenges of life, but not fall into despair and not take emotional damage. And this is possible because as humans, we're not as easily broken uh, as we think we are. And as oftentimes it's, it is suggested. Wow. Alex, this has been one of the most powerful interviews I've had out of more than 500 on this show. So wow. thank you so Good much. I, I'm so, so, so grateful for, um, and I, I, we need to, con I, I want to connect with you on a deeper level. Let me, I, I don't know if you're on Facebook or not, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to find mm -hmm. you. And so um, thank you so much, Bob again is on here still thank you bob for the introduction um yes, alex if you'll you. hang hang on for me i am going to end the show but uh, the live stream but if you would hang on we'll finish up here in just a second after i end this so thank you to everybody for being here especially you alex you're you're amazing thank you're, you so much my pleasure. i'm thanks very very grateful so we'll see you guys later thanks so much make sure you go find alex and follow him everywhere on social media and hang tight for me alex don't leave me i'll be right back okay